Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting August 9th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk with journalist Paul Rayburn about how the Environmental Protection Agency has been taking a long time, decades in fact, to figure out how to handle some potentially dangerous chemicals. And astronomer and geologist Peter Schultz talks about his chosen method of learning about the universe, smashing things into each other. Plus, we'll test you on some recent science in the news. First up, Paul Rayburn. He's been the science editor for the Associated Press and was senior editor for science and technology at Business Week. He's now a freelance journalist and author, and he had an article in the August issue of Scientific American about the EPA's foot dragging on pesticide regulation. I called him at his home in New York City. Paul, thanks for talking to us today. Yes, he's happy to be here. You have this article in the August Scientific American about the EPA and DDVP and a whole bunch of alphabet soup. Let's let's talk about what first of all what is DDVP? What is that chemical? Uh DDVP, another name for it is dichlorvos, and it's a household pesticide. It's uh, one of a group of things called organophosphates. Um and I didn't realize till I started working on this story that those actually are chemically related to World War II era nerve agents. Um, when those things were being tested, researchers discovered that insect nervous systems were much more sensitive to the chemicals uh, than human nervous systems. And so in small amounts, they would be toxic to insects. And what they original, originally thought was that they would be harmless to humans. That's turned out to be much, much more complicated in the ensuing decades. So let's talk about the EPA and the regulation of DDVP and and what that represents in terms of EPA regulations in general. Well, I think DDVP is the is the example of where EPA has fallen down on regulation of pesticides. The problem here was that when the EPA was created and began to look at pesticides, which is going back to the early 70s, there were many, many pesticides already on the market. So it had a different job from what it normally does, one of the things the EPA does is looks at some new chemicals and decide whether they're safe, just as the FDA does with drugs. But they had the problem of looking at pesticides that were already on the market. And so by the time they got around to that job, there were thousands of them. And in their defense, I, 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 don't, I won't give them too much credit here, but I will say that that was a huge job to take on. The problem has been that you know, whether it would have taken them several years or five years or even 10 years, we might forgive them and say it was a lot of work, it took time. But they've started to review these things in the late 1970s. So we're now, uh, you know, in, in, in three decades of um, waiting for the EPA to make some decisions on, on a lot of these pesticides, whether they're safe or not. And I would assume that these pesticides are probably more dangerous to little kids or or developing fetuses, is that right? Well, that's certainly one of the risks that's come up uh, with a lot of them, um, particularly these organophosphates. It's a uh, particular problem with children. Um, but the, you know, the, the issue here is that uh, it's not a question of uh, finding out whether they're, I mean, to a certain extent, everybody except the EPA, uh, many people outside the EPA now recognize that many of these chemicals are quite dangerous. There are, there are hundreds I'm sure thousands of studies showing the problems. What has been stalled has been the EPA's, you know, official regulatory recognition of the problems and then to take some action to get rid of these things or persuade manufacturers to phase them out. So 
it's not a, we know the science we know these things are problematic not everything is certain we don't know exactly what they do but we know that they're risky and we'd probably be better off without them and even in the cases where we know for certain that some of these chemicals are dangerous the EPA still hasn't acted yeah i was just bringing up little kids and fetuses to point out that there've been a lot of little kids and fetuses in the last 30 years whereas you know an adult 30 years ago is still an adult yeah that's right and i mean we don't have you know we don't have uh, uh huge numbers of children dying these effects aren't lethal but who knows what's happened to all those fetuses and kids born over the last 30 years in terms of very subtle nervous system uh, malfunctioning or problems now i'm not suggesting that any of this is nailed down but the point is uh it's clear that these chemicals are risky they do have an effect on the human nervous system it is stronger with kids and fetuses and so let's do something you know let's not just spend uh 30 years considering the problem now your article points out that at least part of the problem in the the foot dragging would appear to be a relationship between industry and the EPA yes well that that that's right so it so the question is the EPA has taken this long to act on these things why and so in the reporting i tried to look at that and uh clearly the EPA employees themselves uh, a letter from their um unions to the EPA administrator Stephen Johnson they charged that the EPA is foot dragging and that it's much much too closely allied with the chemical companies and the makers and users of these pesticides so that's of even more concern again if if we might be forgiving of the EPA if um the agency was having it was was we might be more forgiving if they were simply incompetent but it appears to be more than that at least charges from its own employees suggest that there's a, a deliberate effort to slow down uh, any regulatory action on these pesticides you know what always cracks me up is that often the same people who want deregulation want tort reform and deregulation would uh, would lead to a lot of things that are potentially dangerous being there and the free market is supposed to correct that but the tort reform that they also want would take the free market out of play because you wouldn't be able to give big awards to anyone who was damaged right. by these dangerous compounds or dangerous products so yeah that's right i think you, you, we've got to have something to protect us and and the this pesticide we're talking about by the way is a household pesticide it's used in no pest strips and dog collars uh we, when we go into the drugstore to buy one of those things we don't we have no way of knowing whether it's safe or not um so we have a couple of ways of doing that one is to have an agency like the EPA that can do the research and the testing and find out um and evaluate you know university research and so forth find out whether those things might be harmful or as you say we have legal means of recourse if somebody is harmed by a product but if the if the regulatory agency is moving slowly and if there are efforts in uh, Washington to deprive consumers of legal means namely lawsuits to to go after companies they think have harmed them then that leaves us in a in a rough position i i don't mean to to sound like i'm editorializing or taking a political point of view i mean simply as somebody who covers science and writes for magazines like scientific american i'm interested in seeing that when people do research and get answers and know something that appropriate political action is taken to reflect those scientific results and i think what uh, i found um sort of aggravating and 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 almost unbelievable as i was reporting the story was that the answers are so clear on some of these pesticides from a scientific point of view 
and yet the political process has just uh, almost come to a standstill. So where does this story go from here? So where we go from here, the EPA has, in response to the uh, uh, charges from its employees, has taken some small steps forward, and uh, articles about this, like uh, the story that we did in the magazine, um, will create some public consciousness. So I, I think we have some reason to think that the EPA will begin to move ahead on this, but we're going to need a tough EPA that is willing to take action that will be very unpopular with the chemical industry and others in related areas. Uh, and it's not clear that we have that now. Certainly, there are plenty of people in a position to know who think that the EPA is not being nearly tough enough. Paul Rayburn, thanks very much. Great to be here, Steve. Thank you. Paul's article on DDVP as a case study of the EPA is in the August issue of Scientific American. Paul Rayburn's website is www.paulrayburn.com. That's P-A-U-L-R-A-E-B-U-R-N. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which stories totally bogus. Story one, attractive people have more sons than daughters. Story two, how warm was it? Inuits in Canada are buying air conditioners. Story three, a bar in China lets patrons blow off steam by punching employees. And story four, teenagers who listen to music with sexually suggestive lyrics have sex at a younger age. We'll be back with the answer, but first, Peter Schultz is a Brown University professor of geology and an astronomer. He's the director of the Northeast Planetary Data Center and the NASA Rhode Island Space Grant Consortium. He was part of the Deep Impact mission last year that blasted a rocket into a comet, and he hangs out at the NASA Ames Vertical Gun Range in California, blasting things to smithereens. To find out more about constructive destruction, I called Schultz at his office in Providence. Professor Schultz, thanks for talking to us today. Uh, you bet. So I hear you've been smashing things into other things. What, what exactly do you do? <laughs> well, let me put it this way. I play in the sandbox whenever I can, but I use a very high-velocity gun to do it. Um, Which just sounds like more fun. Exactly. You get dirty. You really do get down and dirty. You, When you come out of there, your hair is filled with dust. Your eyes are clogged. Your nose is clogged. But it is so much fun. And when you say high velocity, you're talking really high velocity. This stuff is humming. Um, we go in, uh, the velocities we use are anywhere from 6 to 10 times faster than a speeding bullet. So let's back up a little bit. What is the intent of all this smashing? All planetary bodies um, are victims of these um, uh, random crashes. But we have to understand the process, and there's several ways to do that. Um, right now, a lot of people are using computational codes uh, to simulate the event. But um, what I like to do is to actually do the whole-scale event in small scale. And that way we understand what craters, why craters look like they do on places like the Moon, Mercury, and Mars, and Venus, and what might happen to the Earth if we got hit for the next big one. How can we be sure that the the scaling up or scaling down in this case is going to give you accurate results? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's always a challenge, but it's remarkable how similar uh, what we see on the other planets uh, versus what we see in the laboratory. Um, give you a good example, and the most recent example was Deep Impact. We slammed into that comet, 9P-1, with a, um, a velocity higher than what we get in the laboratory, 
and with a much larger mass. But boy, we saw something that was very, very similar to what we'd see in the laboratory. And this was, it did get a lot of press at the time. This was the mission to the comet where he actually, as you said, smashed into the comet. Anything in particular that you've learned that surprised you from Deep Impact? One of the big surprises was how uh, fluffy the surface was. That is that uh, at least for the impact itself, we could tell that this crater must have been large. And probably the only way it can be at large with all the energy that we put into it was if the material is very fluffy. Now, the other thing we could see, which was very remarkable, is we could see the vapor plume being generated by the impact and traveling into the um, outer space at very high velocities. And this vapor plume, as it expanded, um, we were able to track it just like we do in the laboratory. Uh, the composition of that material is will be telling us something about the perhaps the nature of the primordial materials or perhaps something related to the um, impact process itself. And and again, we're going to be seeing papers from that for years to come, probably. Oh, absolutely. You know, everybody's going to have a slightly different opinion, and everybody is looking at them with different instruments. Tell, so I think we have a lot of uh, a lot of work, a lot of synthesis yet to do. Tell me about the Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite Mission. Yeah, this is the this is, it's nicknamed LCROSS or Lunar Cross, and this is a mission that's intending to do something very similar to what we did for Deep Impact, but this time we're going for the moon. Um, it, it, now on a comet, we know there's ice and dust, but for the moon, well, we don't know if it's there for sure, and if it is there, it's it's hidden in the permanently shadowed areas uh, of the poles. The and, the ice we're talking about. The ice, exactly. So we. So the reason we think it's there is that there have been measurements made by previous um, uh, satellites indicating that there is hydrogen coming off the polar regions. And that hydrogen, very good candidate for that, is, is, is water ice. So if that's the case, this may be an important supply for future lunar explorers because it's very expensive to transport water to the moon. And so we're basically, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to trivialize it, but basically going to smash something into the south pole of the moon and see what comes up? Yep, that's basically it. Is there anything that's most fun that stands out in your mind as ha having been the most fun to smash into something else? I'm thinking in, a long time ago, David Letterman used to drop things from the roof of the building or from a six-story building, and, and there were some things that hit the ground that were just more fun to watch explode than other things were. Well, we did do some experiments, um, and we officially called them thinly-shelled oblate spheroid containing variable viscosity uh, until we were outed uh, for that these things were simply eggs. Uh, <laughs> we, we had figured out a way that it was very important to understand how craters form when the projectile deforms uh, a great deal. And so the best way was to take an egg, uh, fill it up with uh, plaster Paris, and then you just use the oak yolk and um, cook them to different degrees. And so we had the full range from a solid body to something that was um, basically a raw egg. And uh, let's just say the uh, chamber was not used for a couple of weeks after that. Yeah, I'm sure. So what, what was the uh, the highlight of your of your outcome there? Very interesting. It's it's something that every kid knows when he when he takes a um, um, a spray, a fire hose, uh, or just a hose and puts it into sand. Uh, what happens is you get a compression zone right in the center, and then everything shears off from the side. So you have a little bit of a mound in the center. That's what we got. 
Um, when we got something that was soft and deformable, uh, we simply created a, um, a a zone that was compressed and uh, resisted the excavation in the center and just sheared. So we had a crater with a little mound of in bottom. How long did it take to air out the chamber? Uh, it really did. It took it took about it took a couple weeks. So what's what's the future of smashing things into other things for science? I think this is a brand new strategy that we're going to be able to use in a lot of different planets. And I think we've seen that we slammed into a comet and we're going to be slamming into the moon. Um, I think that's just the beginning. Uh, we can use this as a way to dig material out from below, see it for the first time. And at the same time, we can do measurements, spectral measurements of the vapor coming off these bodies to understand things that are largely hidden from view. Uh, so it's really an exciting new technique. and. Um, also means that I get to do some more smashing in the future. Well, I just hope that you don't find the first inhabited other world this way. Professor Schultz, thanks very much. Uh, you bet. The Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite, LCROSS, is set to go up in October of 2008. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, attractive people have more sons than daughters. Story two, Eskimos are buying air conditioners. Story three, a Chinese bar allows patrons to relieve stress by punching the staff. And story four, teens who listen to sexually suggestive lyrics have sex earlier. Time's up. Story four is true. Kids who listen to sexually suggestive music have sex earlier, and I don't mean before breakfast. The study was published in the journal Pediatrics. Of course, the researchers think the music influences the behavior, but perhaps it's a correlation, not a causation. That is, maybe young people who engage in risky behaviors are also attracted to music about such behaviors. Story three is true. Wire service reports say that the Rising Sun Anger Release Bar in Nanjing allows stressed out customers to punch the staff, smash stuff, and scream. I thought the original reason for going to a bar, you know, having a drink was enough to relieve stress, but hey, psychological counseling is also available, probably, to the staff as well as patrons. Story two is true. You no longer have to be a great salesman to get Inuits to buy air conditioners. An Inuit leader explains, quote, our Arctic homes are made to be airtight for the cold and do not breathe well in the heat with this warming trend. End quote. Temperatures were in the high 80s in Kujuak recently. You can read the whole story titled In Warmer World, Even Inuit Buy Air Conditioners. That's on our website, Siam.com. All of which means that story one about attractive people having more sons is totally bogus. Because a new study finds that good-looking couples have 36% more daughters on average than, well, not you, but than your less attractive acquaintances. The study, published in the Journal of Theoretical Biology, surmises that since beauty is heritable and since females benefit more than males do from being attractive, natural selection maximizes the effect by giving the beautiful people more daughters. We'll be right back. Tired of searching the internet in a vain attempt to answer your science question? Well, now you can ask a scientist. Send your science questions to podcast at siam.com. And if we pick your science question... Johnny, tell them what they've won! An answer to your science question from an actual scientist. Plus, we'll have you ask the question yourself on the podcast. So, send your science questions to podcast at siam.com today. Nori broadcast a retransmission of the accounts or descriptions of Ask a Scientist are allowed without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Due to the results of recent school board elections, Ask a Scientist is available in Kansas.
Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address, podcast at siam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. That's right. <laughs> That's good. <laughs>